Simon's mother-in-law was in bed, sick with a fever, and they told Jesus about her at once. He went to her, took her by the hand, and raised her up. The fever left her, and she served him. She served him. That evening, a sunset people brought to Jesus those who were sick or demon-possessed. The whole town gathered near the door. He healed many who were sick with all kinds of diseases, and he threw out many demons. But he didn't let the demons speak because they recognized him. Early in the morning, well before sunrise, Jesus rose and went to a deserted place where he could be alone in prayer. Simon and those with him tracked him down. When they found him, they told him, everyone's looking for you. He replied, let's head in the other direction to the nearby villages so that I can preach there too. That's why I've come. He traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and throwing out demons. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing. He said, be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses command for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. That's the word of the Lord, the people of the God. Oh, oh, Jesus, why don't you heal more these days? Like, why can't we set a clock by it? Why can't that part of your saving power be as assured and reliable as the part which says, if we call upon your name, you will indeed save us. We trust in that. Why can't we trust in this? Why does that part of your love and your power and your nearness come through so loud and clear while our prayers for healing sound like static or like a Xerox of a Xerox or like a message in a bottle that may or may not get here or like a note that is barely discernible and doesn't read how we'd hope or desired. For as strange and as risky as working through the previous parts of Mark's gospel have been. Uh, those exorcisms have been really tricky sermon prep, I assure you. Um, Jesus the exorcist in some ways is a lot easier. Like Jesus the exorcist depends more on us being convinced that there are dark spiritual forces warring around us and even within us. And if I can convince you about that, and that's not a slam dunk for everyone, but if I can convince you about that, surely Jesus can and would defeat them. That's not a difficult next step. But when you've suffered, when you've been around those who are suffering, if you've lost even one loved one to an illness, we start to wonder, 
about Jesus's power and willingness to heal. As you might imagine, I have a lot of reservations about preaching a sermon on physical healing in the middle of a global pandemic where more than 2.3 million people have died and that death toll keeps rising every day. I'm not really sure what to say. Like how much hope should I drum up? How much risk is healthy for our expectations on God? But I also don't want to forfeit the real hope that we have and that we should have, that this universe isn't closed and that God intervenes. Someone in the midst of suffering and fear and the unknown, it's not really good news. Uh, many of the sermons that I've heard around this like sound like the uh, line at summer camp or in the back of your yearbooks that says something like, maybe the real healing were the friends we made along the way. That's not really good news for someone who is at the hospital and who is sick and scared. A few observations uh, from our passages today. When we find multiple people suffering physical ailments of different kinds and receiving healing from Jesus. And then then I want to pull in a conversation partner because when you're out of your depth, it's always good to pull other people into the pool with you, right? Um, so first, we uh, find the short account of Jesus healing Simon's mother-in-law. It's always a temptation to focus just on like the moment of actual healing, but the circumstances around this really um, tell a lot about these encounters. First off, I noticed that this is a story of intimacy and immediacy. Mark's gospel um, is peppered with, in this happened, in this happened immediately. The, the Greek is euthos, like right away. Everything happens right away. Mark's gospel can make you exhausted if you read it too fast. Um, but Jesus comes to this woman because he was told about her. Jesus comes to Simon's mother-in-law because he was told about her. Jesus was sought and brought to the ones nearest and dearest to his new disciples. Like they weren't relying on years of relationship and trust. They had just been called to join Jesus and they were already bringing him in contact with this loved one who was hurting. We don't know a whole lot about Simon or the mother-in-law, but we can kind of start to piece some things together about what is said and what is left unsaid, that she was probably a widow, which means she was in Simon's care and was already a really vulnerable person. And a fever is not really anything to mess with in a time before penicillin. People die from fevers even now. But what we see is that Jesus's heart and his attention and his healing goes out to this vulnerable woman. Jesus is shown to this hurt and this vulnerability by those who care for and are responsible for her. So Jesus is fledgling disciples, intimacy and immediacy, their urgency, create space and opportunity for Jesus's own intimacy and immediacy. The, the, the disciples having intimacy and being urgent creates urgency and intimacy from Jesus. I think also the story um, of 
the man whose friends dig out the roof uh, and lower him down to Jesus because he wasn't able to come to Jesus with uh, via his own legs. Do we remember that other gospel story? Their care and their desire for their friend in this story interrupts this sort of proud, stubborn, cold talk of religious elites that's happening below them in the house. Like these guys have come from near and far to pepper Jesus with questions and to listen to Jesus lecture and to publicly disagree with him. We've all been to these sorts of debates and this sort of discourse that lacks either immediacy or intimacy. And the friends interrupt that with immediacy. Their friend could not wait, could not elbow through or go through a proper door. They needed to make a way where there was no way. And with intimacy, they knew their friend and they cared for him so deeply, they were going to be part of making the way. Jesus delights when we join our hearts to God's heart for the suffering. That's what so many of the Psalms are about, is, is the psalmist being freed and having a free voice to join their hearts to God's heart in the midst of suffering or on behalf of the suffering of others. When we rejoice with those who rejoice or grieve with those who grieve, we come closer to how God joins in the joy and the suffering of others. So often rejoicing with those who rejoice is a challenge for us because of our envy. And so often uh, sorrowing with those who sorrow is a challenge because of all the defense mechanisms that we throw up to keep us away from hurt or vulnerability. But Jesus is neither surprised nor threatened by the deep hurts of the world. Jesus wept. Do you remember that? Jesus wept. Another observation um, the story, Jesus wept. Uh, that was so many of our like uh, sword drill verse or memory verse because we could remember the whole thing so easily, right? But if we remember where that uh, short verse comes from, it's that moment in John's gospel where the object of Jesus's tears is the death of a family friend, Lazarus. Jesus stands at the graveside and before taking any action, Jesus just sits in grief, in the enormity of loss. Jesus becomes one of the mourners. Jesus becomes one of us. And then he calls Lazarus out. This is not like a final or proper resurrection because Lazarus will eventually die again. Uh, I wonder about many of these healing stories because uh, these people will probably hurt again or may even become sick again. We can call Lazarus's at least like a resuscitation or maybe some sort of healing. It is though in John's gospel, the final sign, the undeniable pointer or signifier to his forthcoming death on the cross, his three days in the tomb in a graveside full of weeping Marys, and then the grave is empty. The grave clothes are folded and set aside. The weeping 
ceases for he is not there. I'm allowed to talk about this because we're not quite in Lent yet, right? And in our story today, upon being told about this woman, Simon's mother-in-law, he reaches down and takes her by the hand and raises her up. This, I think, is a, a subtle and a beautiful preview. It's a small glimpse at what is happening for her and what will also happen for Jesus. She is raised but will eventually die again. Jesus, crucified and buried, will be raised on the third day never again to die. And he will raise us with him. We will join him as the latter fruits of the new creation. Every act of healing then, every act from the seemingly minor and what we would know as quote unquote natural, like mending of a paper cut or how a bruise goes from deep purple to like kind of greenish yellow and eventually back to normal. That's a kind of healing to the more dramatic kinds of healing, like a remissioned cancer or the return of sight. Every single act of healing then is some sort of preview and a participation in Christ's own resurrection. In the ways that Jesus has once and for all healed humanity, healed creation. This this signals to us the, the whole intent, the whole possibility, the very direction of this wounded and scarred creation, the wounds and scars we carry around in our own bodies, what direction it's all headed. Second Corinthians 5 says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. So in our story, Jesus has a body and he cares for bodies because all of this is part of this burgeoning, budding new creation that's coming about slowly but surely. Another thing, after the fever leaves this woman, she makes this dramatic shift and, and Mark doesn't really mince words on it. It says, um, it says that, that Jesus raises her up and the fever leaves and she starts serving. And, and, and so she shifts into service. The word here is related to our word for like deaconing. Like she is, she is serving. She's, she then, she moves from her deathbed to being involved in the menial work of washing feet and waiting tables and coming near to suffering and bringing Jesus's healing presence near to it as well. She's drafted into service. Mark's gospel is full of messianic secrets that Jesus's divine identity might not be revealed prematurely, but those who are healed can't keep from singing. The man with leprosy is so thrilled from his contact with Christ that he runs out and tells the good news. He blows the secret from his own experience. The kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven. It's near and you can see it on his now smooth skin that is no longer a disqualifier for him to be part of things. So healing is for service and for proclamation. Healing is not just for healing's sake, but healing is, is for this new calling and work in the world. 
So after this first episode with the mother-in-law, and then there are these multiple healings and exorcism that Jesus performs. That should remind us that physical healing is never far behind spiritual healing and vice versa. They're all kind of tangled together. And our scene flips to the next morning. Jesus is in a secluded place praying. When Simon and others track him down, they, they tell him. It almost feels like they're yelling at him, saying, everyone's looking for you. Like the subtext of that is like, where have you been? We've been worried sick. Also, why are you not healing other people? Like Jesus' healing is in great demand. Um, this, it, it's amazing Jesus' kind of discipline or playfulness or like kind of the different page that Jesus is on when it comes to his, his willingness and, and availability to heal. Like um, most of us think of this as some sort of superpower that if we had, we'd never stop doing. Like I always tell people that never in my life have I been someone who uh, can run fast, but if I could run fast, I would never walk. Like, and so like, if you could heal, why would you not always be healing around the clock? You know, um, but Luke's gospel tells of Jesus's time in the wilderness. And after Jesus's baptism, he's tested. He's driven into the wilderness by the same Holy Spirit that came down and alighted him and said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And, and then contrary to the like aggressive and dramatic ways, that the powers and principalities assault Jesus in Mark's gospel. That's very Mark. Um, Luke's wilderness temptations are, are way more subtle. Like the Satan is more of a, like a, a whisperer, like an accuser. But um, the, these temptations that, that show up in, in Luke's wilderness testing are, 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 are really tricky. Like basically the, they come down to make the stone into bread, feed yourself and others in this place of, of lack and scarcity, make abundance. That's something normally we can get on board with, right? Or the second temptation is something like take control of this out of control world. Um, and the third is something like call upon God's angels to make you your life safe, to make you so that you won't be in danger. Each of these temptations, they're all kind of small twists on the very best instincts and hopes for the world. They're slight amendments to Jesus's messianic vocation. And instead of embracing these fraudulent um, uh, callings, Jesus reorients always with God's words on his tongue to a full-throated, wide-eyed, open-hearted intimacy and reliance on God the Father. Instead of going on a healing spree, Jesus is found praying alone. I don't think he's being stingy with his power for healing. But I think he's constantly reconnecting to his and our only source of power and healing. You often hear this in like activist circles that, that um, people who are um, more uh, um, aligned or, or excited or gifted in, in activism um, sometimes uh, start out 
with this really contemplative thread. And sometimes that gets lost because there's so much to do. This is a classic Mary and Martha um, uh, kind of uh, split. Uh, we have to hold those together and Jesus uh, more than anyone holds those uh, active healing in at work in this world and contemplative uh, near to God impulses together. I think he knows that if he drifts away from this sort of intimacy with God, it could easily bring about like some form of power without intimacy. And that sounds actually kind of good um, because it, at least it's power in a world full of suffering and lack. Any sort of power sounds good. But I think Jesus knows and the cross is like the ultimate um, uh, witness to the fact that, that, intimacy, that power without intimacy can bring about suffering rather than alleviating it. So Jesus embraces sometimes less, embraces sometimes uh, suffering, embraces sometimes not going and doing in order to stay and be with God. Um, last, last observation from our stories today. And this is more from the last story about the, the man with the skin disease uh, known in the Bible as, as leprosy or, or some sort of um, some sort of kind of um, uh, basically they were known as almost like zombies, like the walking dead. Their, their, their skin was was um, like uh, necrotic. Right. Um, and this man seeks Jesus for healing. He comes to Jesus as an outsider. He comes to Jesus as someone who is unclean and unfit for worship. He wouldn't have been allowed to worship in the, uh, in the temple. His skin would make him unclean. But he comes to Jesus crawling on his knees in a posture of worship, of humility. This is someone who's been ostracized and with faith and hope that these th things may be different, he, he comes looking for healing. And this is this healing that he's looking for. He's confident that it's possible. It may or may not happen, but it will surely change his life. It will change him, not just on a, like a dermatological level. It will change him on a social level. It'll change everything about his everyday. Scottish theologian John Swinton, who uh, deals with issues of medicine and, and especially uh, psychology and theology. He says, the primary suffering that accompanied leprosy was not its biological symptoms as important as these certainly are, but there are the pollution and exclusion from holiness. This man was not able to be counted holy. Within a culture that is totally God-centered, such exclusion was equally as painful as, or even more painful than the clinical manifestations of this illness. But Jesus draws near to him. Jesus touches him. Jesus, by touching him, joins him as an outcast. And by touching him, mysteriously brings him into God's presence and the possibility of God's future. Swinton goes on to say, by sharing in social exclusion of those whom society had marginalized, Jesus shifts 
the margins. Those previously marginalized people now form the very heart of God's coming kingdom. This man is in the center of God's kingdom, even though he had been in the far cast off margins before. Jesus's healing shifts the margins. So I can't in good faith sit here today and tell you that Jesus has promised to heal all your wounds or to heal them permanently. Um, The vast suffering of our world indicates that many wounds will go unhealed. Nor will I say that Jesus won't or doesn't affect healing in some ways that we're so used to we don't even consider healing, but also in some dramatic ways in ways that take so much time and change us so dramatically that we forgot what the pain was like or what we ever expected healing to be like, but also less often with surprisingly fast relief. I can't tell you that it's gonna happen. I certainly won't tell you that it won't ever happen. I'm reminded this week, my my friend Kate Bowler was sharing an experience and Kate, uh, some of you know, um, uh, is, is living with, Uh, cancer, and um, prior to that uh, was researching the prosperity gospel, the gospel of health and wealth and and miraculous healing. And um, part of her research brought her to interview the pastor who founded the uh, Toronto Airport Church in the 1980s that was really famous. It was known as the Toronto Blessing. And in a span of a decade, there are hundreds of healing miracles, this, this wild an uncanny movement of the spirit. And a lot of these um, miracles were like quote unquote dental miracles, which I don't really understand what that means. Like some people would have like fillings changed to gold, which sounds really crazy. Um, and she was asking this pastor about it. And he, he fumbled in his belt, you know, kind of the way like older men often wear um, belt, like a lot of utilities on their belt with like various clips and holsters, phones and pocket knives and things. And he fumbled in his belt and he pulled out a small but powerful flashlight. Um, he explained not how these things occurred or that they could be counted on to continue to occur, but he explained with this flashlight to her that in order to see these miracles, that had happened to inspect them and so that they could be seen by others, he had to start carrying around a flashlight in his belt. (laughs) It occurred to Kate, like, again, this whole realm of healings and miracles is is pretty unwieldy. It's it's not to be instrumentalized or counted on or manipulated or weaponized, but but basically uh, one of the things she concluded was, well, if you want to experience miracles, one first step is to start carrying around a flashlight so you can actually see them when they happen, right? Um, so uh, I'll kind of leave leave our, our uh, this section on that. Like, uh, in what ways are we are we awake to and expectant of things to happen in a way that we would carry a flashlight and able to to see and show others when God does show up and intervene in our lives? Um, I want to bring in a conversation partner because I'm so excited about this because we have so many um, brilliant and gifted people 
um, in this Oak Church community. And Calvin, aside from calling out Shirley for um, mispronouncing Buccaneers, um, is one of those people. Um, and I, I wanted to, to ask him a few questions because Calvin is a, a fourth year medical uh, student at UNC. Um, and he's also one of those rare uh, duly aligned folks because he's a second year master's of theological studies student at Duke Divinity where he's focused on theology, medicine, and culture. Next year, he'll be a, uh, a resident and his eventual goal is to become a hospice and palliative medicine doctor and to be able to write about and think about things that will be really useful for Christians uh, who practice medicine or who enter into medicine as patients. So I wanted to ask um, first, uh, Calvin, um, tell, tell us a little bit about your, your hopes for a career in medicine as a Christian. What, what drew you to this and what are your hopes as a Christian in medicine? Yeah, so um, I think first I'm really happy to talk to everyone. I started on this whole journey of thinking about medicine theologically because I wanted to uh, read, think about, and write things that would benefit the church, um, people who are all trying to love Jesus. So I'm, I'm just really happy to be able to do this. So I think um, I, I entered medicine for a, a ton of reasons, but I think one of the biggest ones is it seemed to me like a place where I could um, do work that reflected God's kingdom, that reflected the world that God is creating and is making and is bringing. And actually for me, this chapter of Mark, Mark 1 is probably the most important passage of a sense of calling for me as I look at it. And so I think about a few things as I, as I hope and I look forward for my career. And the first one is actually exactly what Chris talked about at the beginning of the sermon, which is this sense of being united to suffering and close to the vulnerable. I think that as you look throughout the gospels, Jesus heals a lot of people, but it's almost as if he's seeking out or paying special attention to people who are not just sick, but ostracized and marginalized. Like um, Peter's mother, who's a widow and is not the most popular person in town, people with leprosy who are not allowed to participate in any of society, a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years and is going to be a total outcast, and that Jesus's healing ministry is one of bringing these people from the margins to the center, um, caring for the people that other people would have not noticed or intentionally ignored. And so for me, I really want to think about who are those people in the medical world today? Who are the patients that nobody likes, that no one wants to care for, the patients that people are scared of? Um, and I want to do a really good job taking care of them. I want to pay attention to them and give them the um, care and attention that other people wouldn't want to. I think part of that is why I want to do hospice and palliative medicine. So it's essentially you care for people who are dying um, pretty soon or may die or in danger of dying. And that's uncomfortable and scary. And a lot of times those people, um, people don't want to ask difficult questions or talk with them. And for me, um, caring for those people is a way of following in Jesus's footsteps. That's great. Yeah. So the, these last uh, few years, you've, you, you've kind of had one foot in each of two different worlds, uh, the medical and the theological, um, Tell us a little bit about how your 
how your theological studies have informed your medical and how your medical has informed your theological studies? Yeah, I think, um, I think probably on the first side of things is, um, I, I can just talk a lot more explicitly and openly with patients who are Christians, which I think is awesome. I think that, um, as in a lot of professions, um, there's kind of like a, there's a sense that like certain things are off limits and we don't talk about those. And I think again, working with a lot of patients who are super sick or, or dying, I, I can talk really explicitly with them about, um, you know, what does it mean to you to follow Jesus right now? Um, how can we care for you medically in a way that is consistent with who you are given your faith? Um, and I feel like I can encourage people directly with things from scripture, from the Psalms, especially um, in ways that, you know, almost no one else in the hospital is able to do except for chaplains who are um, awesome people. Um, I think on the other side, the medicine and the theologically, I think that I am inclined to stay away from easy answers. I think it can be really easy to have trite responses to, to questions um, about suffering, about healing. Um, and I think that when I have been with people who are really sick, I've been with people who are praying for healing and are not healed or people who are praying for healing and have been healed. But um, I am, um, I, I don't want to settle for easy answers. Um, I want um, true, satisfying, real answers. That's great. And, and um, just, just a, maybe a, not an easy one, but a practical question um, that that probably many of us uh, wonder about is is given what you know and are learning in your experience, what what or how do you pray when you pray for someone to be healed by God? Yeah, so I think you know, given what I just said about easy answers, I think I'm in, intensely aware of how um, there. I think there are two extremes in in praying for healing, both of which I think can be really damaging spiritually. So one is, I think that almost a prosperity gospel sense of if we have enough faith, if we, you know, name it and claim it and pray with enough power, God will heal someone. I think that's really damaging because a lot of people don't get healed. And so the, the response to that is what's well, something that I've done. I didn't have enough faith and God is, is punishing me or something like that. I think that's really dangerous and really harmful to people's faith. The other side, I think, is kind of a, a side that emphasizes the sovereignty of God so much that we can't know God's will. So we'll pray, you know, God, we'd like this and this and that. If it's your will, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I think that's also really difficult and damaging because the assumption is that um, um, our health or our healing isn't necessarily that important to God. And I think I think both sides of that are really untrue. So I, I honestly, I pray pretty boldly for people's healing. I think that it's, it's really clear throughout scripture. Health is good. Being healthy is a good thing. Um, in Genesis, right? Adam and Eve are created without, without any sicknesses or any illnesses. Um, Jesus's healing ministry is restoring people. You know, it's part of the evidence of the fact that God's kingdom is here is that people are being healed. Uh, I think about the epistles and revelation that it's clear. We're going to have new bodies. We're not going to be disembodied spirits. We're going to have bodies and then we're going to be healthy bodies. So I think that health is a, is a, is a really good thing. So I, I pray pretty openly, you know, God, um, we pray for healing. We know that health is something that you love. We know that you created us to be healthy, to be able to do all these things that a body should do. We know this is a good thing. The other thing I think I do is I always try to connect my prayer, especially for healing to the bigger story of, of the gospel, the bigger story of the Bible. 
Um, I think it can be easy to just disconnect this and, and pray for healing or health, like as if it's the only thing that's happening. And I think that as Christians, right, we live, we really believe that we live as a part of the, this big, the big story, that God made the world well, that God made the world lovingly, that the world is marred and broken by sin, and that through Jesus, God's rule is coming, is coming back and is already here. Um, and that sickness is a sign of that brokenness of the world. And so I think I, I pray a lot and I say, God, we know that this sickness is a sign that things are not as they should be in this world. Things are wrong. And God, we pray for your coming. We pray for, again, the, the, the end to this story that we hope for and we know is coming um, because that's who we are as Christians. We are people who, who hope for that um, and ask and, and are excited for God's coming. That's great. That's those are all the questions I have. Is there anything else that you want to share or tell us? Yeah, I mean, I think I think maybe I think there are a couple things that I a couple more things that I think about a lot. One of which is um, I think about ways that we can be distinctive as Christians in the midst of sickness or in health. Um, how can we witness to again the story that we're a part of? I think what I said about health being good and about sickness being a sign of sin's power in our world is, is really true. And I think there's, there's a, I think there's another half to that, that I think about that health is a good thing, but it is not the ultimate good thing. I think as, as Christians, we genuinely cling to believe that um, our faithfulness to Christ, that our union with God is the most important thing in the universe. And I think that's why it can sound trite to say some of what I'm going to say. And I'm, I'm super averse to, to trite things because I, again, I've seen like the reality of, of what people suffer, but I think what I ask myself, um, I think is important for us is to say, how can health or illness be conditions that help or hinder our following Jesus? Um, and I mean to say when we're sick, um, what spiritual work is there for us to do while we're sick? What are the ways that we can draw closer to God, that we can witness to God's faithfulness while we are sick? Because I think if, if the only spiritual thing to happen in sickness is to get healed, then I think we're missing out on, on a lot of um, really powerful spiritual work that is to be done. Um, and I think that asking that question um, is something that marks us out as really different and odd from the rest of the world and demonstrates the hope that we have. That's fantastic. Thanks. Thanks so much for sharing. And um, I'm, I'm sure if you have your own questions, you can connect with Calvin and, and, uh, and uh, ask, ask those either in the chat or via email. Uh, thanks so much. I'm going to pray to close our uh, time in the word. Lord Jesus, we thank you um, for having a body and caring uh, for creation, uh, even our bodies. Um, Lord, give us faith and expectation. Um, give us um, uh, wisdom and um, help us follow you. Uh, Lord, uh, encourage us when you uh, give us these misdirections um, that, that uh, it seems like you're not um, doing the things that we desire at the pace that we desire. Um, and Lord, um, help us um, in you to um, constantly be 
reconnecting with God's power and love and desires for this world and uh, ways that you include us in that healing. Um, yes, yeah, so you bless the sick and the sad and the scared and the alone um, and that you use us to, to be a blessing. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.